Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which you talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Well, the weather's been not great in Glasgow, mm-hmm. let's say, but it does mean that I've managed to ingest an awful lot of culture. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I managed to watch um, Personal History of David Copperfield today, mm. uh, which... It's, it's a weird one, Ed. I think some of the performances are amazing. Like, I don't think Hugh Laurie's been better. And Daisy May Cooper is incredible. Dev Patel should be the leading man in everything. Rosalind Elizier, apologies, because I know I've pronounced your last name wrong, <laughs> Rosalind, um, is just, just manages to have this kind of soul and wit and depth to her, even though she's barely in it. And I think that's the problem the writing just isn't quite there which saddens me as a long time Ianucci fan and it's kind of a big deal you know David mm. Copperfield it's not exactly lacking in I guess it's a it's a story where a lot of stuff sort of happens but yeah. I don't know the resonance I'm but I was I'm just like forever uh, sensitive and all the feels so I did have a cry at the end of it Ed. it's not to say that I am <laughs> completely unfeeling I'm cynical and sensitive it's a very confusing mix <laughs> to have um, how about you what have you been up to culturally for me I mean there's been a lot of 2020 catch-up because we want to do you know next week we're going to be doing an episode where we talk about our favorite films of the year so far uh, and I don't want to kind of cannibalize that too much um but i did watch a movie called um the vast of night which a lot of people had recommended which Mm. is a 50s set sci-fi movie that's uh on amazon prime i believe it played at a bunch of festivals last year and got like really good buzz and i was really really impressed by it i it's it's basically about uh two teenagers who work at this public access kind of um, radio um, installation in uh, like New Mexico or, or somewhere like that. And on this one night where there's this big basketball game that the entire town has gone to, so they're pretty much the only people out and about, they start hearing a mysterious noise on the uh, receiver. So the whole film is them trying to figure out what is causing this noise and they get phone calls from people who ask you know when they broadcast the noise itself who say oh i've heard this before i know i think i know what's causing this and it's you know a lot of people compare it to spielberg because there's this particularly you know there's this kind of close encounters thing of you know people being obsessed with uh with something that's potentially extraterrestrial and there is something to that but what it reminded me of more was uh, was primer because Ooh. it's it's obviously not as kind of like brain meltingly <laughs> complicated <laughs> as primer but it is similar in the sense that they're both incredibly small scale movies that manage to convey a lot through the strength of their writing and performances mm-hmm. Be- because so much of the vast of night is just people talking on the telephone or people talking to each other via radios and there's not really much in the way of special effects you know what what handful there are are really sparse so it's mainly just a showcase for this really sharply written script that really endears you to these two young characters and lets you know why they would be so kind of like compelled to try and figure out what the hell's causing this noise and there is in particular there is one sequence where you have these long long takes of the male lead talking on the phone to someone who claims to be have have been in the army and have had investigated something that had produced a noise like this in the past and it's just him talking on the phone to a voice that you you don't see obviously because you're only hearing the the conversation and 
it's really spellbinding because the the writing is good, the performance is good. So much of it is about the pacing of it and the editing of it, and it's just a really great showcase for how you can make a story so kind of engrossing and compelling with the most limited and basic of resources. So, um, yeah, I was I was really impressed with it. I believe it's the debut of the of the director, and I'd be really excited to see what they do what they do next as long mm. as they don't get you know funneled into the the marvel industrial complex Ooh, <laughs> which is always a concern when you kind of make a a, a a low budget and you know but very well executed debut and then immediately it's like oh cool we liked cop car why don't you you know make a couple of spider-man movies or whatever. <laughs> protect <Yeah>. them <laughs> <laughs> that's one i i really liked i also watched uh, Shoplifters, the the Coriander movie that won the Palme d'Or a couple of years ago, which I had been meaning to see because, like, Coriander's one of those filmmakers who, after I saw Still Walking, I was like, oh, this guy's uh, great. This is like such a wonderfully written and constructed small scale drama. It's so wonderful and, and affecting, and you know all the performances are great. I really want to see more movies by this guy, and then. I moved to America and it became really hard to watch his movies because they don't tend to get a very wide release over here. So I've always felt a little ashamed that I haven't seen more of his work because every time we put out a movie, it was like, oh, another one from the great the master. <laughs> and being like, well, I'm sure I'll get it at some point. And this one, because it, it won the Palme d'Or, because it was nominated for an Oscar, I felt, you know, I, I should see this. And so I finally sat down and watched it and it's just as great as, as Still Walking um, which obviously is the only thing I have to compare it to, but you know, it, it, it showcases just what a great director of actors he is, what a wonderful screenwriter he is, because he's so good at crafting these characters that are so that feel so real, and that these situations where you can tell, you know, once you've watched the movie, you can kind of see the various threads that he's laying and how elegantly the whole thing is constructed. He's very much like um, Asghar Fahadi in that in that respect but as you're watching it it just feels like this wonderful slice of life thing where you're just watching a bunch of people going through their lives and in this case you know seeing this found family of of shopkeepers uh, shop, of shoplifters who are all kind of like trying to get by and they all have secrets from each other and you don't entirely know what their relationships are to each other and and so much of the fun of the movie is the way that he teases out those details until the last half of the movie where everything kind of get lays out and, and he does this really effective kind of like gut punch on you of, you know, like all the stuff that you didn't, revealing all the stuff that you didn't know uh, and how that recasts the relationships up to that point. So um, I was just really, really glad to have finally seen that. Mm. So we'll go on to the news for this week. I think probably the... Uh, Let's get out of the way. Uh, Kanye may be running for president. He announced on Twitter yesterday, the 4th of July, uh, at the time that we're recording this, that he intends to run for president. It's so, to me, seems so transparently a publicity stunt for the fact that he's got another terrible album of Jesus songs coming out. And... Like, because he's doing it now after so many of the filing dates have passed and even the ones that haven't passed require, you know, uh, uh, petitions that require thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of signatures. You know, he, even if he ran a writing campaign, there'd be no chance of him doing particularly well because, you know, most people are pretty set at this point of like, they know if they're either going to vote for Trump or they're going to vote for Biden you know, there's not a huge amount of persuadable voters left at this point. It just it just seems like a very crass thing and a very stupid thing that's going to distract everyone from, you know, everything else. And on the one hand, it's kind of fun and diverting to think, you know, that someone... To see him, his hubris and his narcissism on full display. But, you know, I always just kind of think that that, that stuff was more fun when he made good music. Yeah, it's also that thing where it's like, are you really a provocateur if you're just doing the same shtick over and over again? Hmm, and this yeah. is what I levy at Ricky Gervais a lot of the time, who is distractingly <laughs> um, 
distractingly distracting in a mm. comedy actors roundtable that's just been released on YouTube because mm. they're now only doing the kind of COVID uh, roundtables. Obviously, there is no roundtable. It would have to be very big um, to <laughs> <laughs> make sure everyone's two feet apart. It'd have to be the set from Strangelove, wouldn't it, really? That it would. would. You could host it. I mean... <laughs> Not a bad, not a bad suggestion, Ed. In this one, though, you may particularly appreciate it because Rami Youssef is just there being not only like incredibly intelligent and interesting, he also manages mm-hmm. to just like cast Ricky Gervais a few sly looks every so often. Um, <laughs> so that's an early recommendation from me to all of you, but particularly you, Ed, because I was like, yeah, I'm on team Rami here. Um, <laughs> I mean, I wonder if it's just because Kim has now reached billionaire status that he's got someone to bankroll him. But it's the same Mm. with like Elon being like, I'll support you all of the way. It's like, you're all, this isn't, oh, I don't know. (laughs) And then Terry Crews has been so disappointing recently. I'm Mm. trying not to spend all my time on Twitter, Ed, I promise. But like, it's very difficult. And yet it's, it's still like, but all of, all of this, like this channel of Twitter is dull and I and I agree with you. It it's as publicity stunts go. I mean, just from a oh, is he being serious? You know, trying to consider that for a second. I said to you when we found out, like, surely he's got a lot of flyers and badges to print in mm. not a lot of time and distribute them. And and how how many states has he lost out on registering in? Uh, I believe it's seven, including, you know, fairly heavy hitters like New York and Texas, that the filing deadline has passed. And then the rest of them pretty much are all in the next two months. Like most of them, most of the deadlines will have passed by, you know, mid-August. And some of those deadlines are pretty easy to meet, like like to get on the ballot in as an independent ca- uh, candidate. In Alabama, for example, you only need 5,000 signatures, but like in California, you need close to 200,000. And I don't know, not sure that people in California would be particularly happy to have someone come up and, you know, come to their door at the moment and try and get them to sign a petition for anything. Mm. Uh, And then obviously the other options, he just does a write-in campaign uh, everywhere. But like at this point, you know, a a lot of people are pretty set in who they would want to vote for. I don't think that there are many people who would be really swayed by the notion of uh, voting for Kanye West over, like, Joe Biden. So we'll go on to the next piece of news, which was that this week, if you're on Twitter, as all of us are, because we can't leave our houses, um, (laughs) you couldn't move for people tweeting about Hamilton on Disney+, Plus because the filmed version of... The play, which was recorded several years ago with the original cast when they're all still in their roles and was always slated to get released at some point, um, was initially planned for a theatrical release last year through Disney, but then the pandemic hit and Disney basically said, hey, can we put this out on Disney Plus a year earlier because uh, this this seems like a thing that would drive subscriptions, uh, basically. The, the the brutal economics of it and uh, they would they i don't know if it did drive subscriptions but it certainly drove a lot of conversation about disney plus this weekend because everyone seemingly was was watching hamilton and i think it's interesting for it to kind of like hit now because so much of um because so much of the discussion was driven i think by people obviously there are people who are fans of hamilton who've seen it in theatre listened to the album a bunch of times which would in, in, i mean i didn't watch the, the the filmed version of it but I, you know i was all in on hamilton in 2015 2016 so so like there were lots of people who, who like that who had really been into the play for years but there were also just a whole load of new people who were experiencing it for the first time who you know weren't able to see it live because Theatre is often, particularly Broadway theatre, is prohibitively expensive. And I think that was interesting because you got a hold of new perspectives on it, of people being like, this this is a thing that has been hyped up so much for like half a decade and finally getting to watch it. And some people walked away and were like, wow, that was better than anyone had led me to expect. And there were a lot of people who walked away just really bemused by the whole thing. And I think it's been 
really interesting seeing the discussion around the play and its relation to actual American history, its relation to rap, be reignited and relitigated now that way more people are able to actually see it. It has really crystallised for me the difference between American theatre and British theatre. And this is, again, on Twitter, a very touchy subject in terms of arts support. Mm. And I won't go into a massive rant about devolution, just a light smattering (laughs) in that where I am in Scotland, the Scottish government has announced 10 million in terms of immediate support for arts venues and the greater industry. Mm. That's nothing when you like, it's, it's not zero, it's more than zero, but it will not last very long, but it is something for the time being. And at the moment in Westminster, Oliver Dowdin, the MP for culture, has managed to secure absolutely zero Hmm. Um, and putting forward a a five point roadmap that is like, okay, that's all very well and good, but nowhere does this save money and support, which is exactly what needs to happen. Theatres are already starting to close, which is, I'll be honest, incredibly distressing and something I'm trying not to think about too much. Mm. Um, because it's appalling that something even in terms of like talking Tory, which has been the kind of the offhand phrasing of, well, how do the arts engage with a Tory government and austerity, which has been, of course, basically has been happening for at least 10 years and has reached Mm. crisis point in so many ways. How far does that get you? Because even though we have the hard stats in terms of what the UK's cultural sector brings in alone, I think the last figure I saw was well in the sort of double billions and worked out as something like 13 million an hour. And again, mm. and again, we can talk about like, well, you know, maybe a lot of tickets shouldn't have to be that expensive because that is prohibitive. I'm not trying to deny that. But even when you're talking from a pure numbers point, they don't seem to be doing much, which is distressing. I do that ramble because something that's definitely been so so brilliant for me to have access to in terms of lockdown is that the National Theatre has kind of opened up its digital doors and has been showing recordings of the majority of their sort of like greatest hits over the past like five years. And there was a little bit of kind of like National Theatre live broadcast in cinemas. And that was great because it was like, okay, I'm paying for a slightly more expensive cinema ticket, but these recordings are done incredibly well and of a high quality. And if it's a live broadcast, you still feel, you still feel a part of it somehow. And I thought, well, that's a step forward in the right direction, surely, in terms of access to theatre um, for people who, including myself, who is often able to go to London, but is equally also not able to go to London. Mm. And that support and that kind of that those things even exist, that those recordings exist and that have probably been sat on for a very long time. But there is now an argument to say, well, these are things that people have been donating for during lockdown, but what's to say, hopefully, when things come round, that you can't increase your revenue streams through recordings if people can't actually get to theatres. And that was just what struck me on Twitter a lot, is that a lot of people were like, well, how brilliant and radical is this if so many people can't see it and I think it's I think Lindsay Ellis mentions this a lot in one of her video essays in terms of well yeah there is a lottery for tickets but the majority of those tickets are so prohibitively expensive and I Ed I little me got to go and see Hamilton when it was uh, in London Mm -hmm. and this must have been Crikey, when was it in London? Was it two years ago? Two and a bit years ago? Yeah. And I bawled my eyes out mm-hmm. by the end. And I'm definitely not a musical person, but I was someone who'd listened to the soundtrack when it got released on Spotify. Mm. And I think in sort of like the beginning of 2016, and listening to it and being like, I've not heard anything like this before. And the majority of my friends, even people who like really like musicals and I 
like hip hop, but I d- wouldn't ever say that like I'm a fan because I feel like I don't appreciate it enough and know enough about mm. it to do that. But whenever I've listened to it, I've really enjoyed it. But yeah, just this kind of like this combination, I was like, this is very interesting. Bangers, you know, the lot of them. So in terms of like access and all of this, but yeah, it's just that time that's passed. And like right now, I I know it's probably because I have already seen it that I'm less inclined to see it because Mm. I've already had, you know, I've had all of that privilege and I was able to pay in advance for a ticket and a stay in London. Although my best pal put me up (laughs) and came with me. (laughs) Um, But I am interested to see sort of like how it's recorded. And obviously I haven't seen, this is, you know, the original Broadway and, you know, Lin-Manuel et al., And yet it just feels like when Hamilton came out, like when it was first out in like 2015 and just, just like, oh my God. So I feel stupid even saying it, Ed, but so much has happened since then. Don't know how it's, it's a little, right. I mean, obviously uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is no, is, is not shy about talking about how much he loves the West Wing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and I feel like it's kind of like going back and watching the West Wing now it's like this doesn't even feel idyllic or idealistic it just feels kind of like maybe a bit cloying yeah. and a bit sentimental all, all I can say for it is that as someone who does not go to musicals live I was compelled to go and see it listening to the music and just from the sheer kind of like staging of it Mm. It, it it was such an incredible experience and I hope the film kind of like gets that across but yeah now it's like oh geez like the colour conscious casting was kind of incredible but but now you know the number of people who are talking about like okay but it's gonna these are all the people who signed <laughs> the Declaration of Independence and they, they all had slaves and the slaves aren't in this and stuff mm. coming up about Toni Morrison yeah. hating it <laughs> so much and reading just the synopsis of the play that she helped fund, I was like, yeah, I also want to see that. And that sounds kind of hilarious um, as a companion piece. So I'm kind of in this position where I'm like, I was really in, in, because I feel now like we all kind of have our own like timelines with, with pieces of culture and our own, our own arcs as like responding to things almost as protagonists ourselves. (laughs) Mm-hmm. and I think that's it like for me it was like oh what's this oh my god this is incredible and now like that was oh Hamilton sucks on cigarette haven't heard that name in a, in a long time <laughs> yeah I think for me someone someone summed it up on Twitter I think it was Bobby Big Wheel um, sub, summed it up on Twitter where he basically said Hamilton is good making it your personality isn't <laughs> I think like that's that seems to be where I I, I fall and on it which is that i think it's a tremendously well like the songs are all like so many of them are bangers i still think that wait for it is is such a fantastic character song and that uh leslie odom jr just was absolutely fantastic in that uh in that role as aaron burr and but you know i feel like there, there was a time there was only a time for me when i was just like super duper obsessed with it and i think it was i managed to keep it in check but there are a lot of people who were just it became something that really consumed their life in a way and that it's yeah it's similar to like people who really venerate the west wing as like you know oh this is the way that the government should be run or whatever you kind of think you know these are are works of fiction even if they're drawing from real life and real history in some way you can't use these as a thing to kind of dictate your view of the world and your politics you can they're, they're, they're things you can you know just enjoy as like a really excellently well staged thing and th- that for me that's the like you that's the thing that i think is, is quite interesting about the possibility of watching the disney plus version of like seeing if they manage to convey how great the staging of that is you know all the like inter uh linking parts of the stage and everything like that which was you know the dramaturgy of it was all the thing that i found so compelling was that extra thing when i went to see it in new york um from having listened to, to the album like a bunch of times and like learned so many of those songs uh, by heart, basically at that point of s- suddenly being like, all oh, right, this is why you pay X hundred number of dollars to come and see this live because 
you know so much is it's they they do so much visually that just isn't there on the album mm. um but yeah uh, if anyone is listening to this and hasn't seen hamilton and is interested in it yeah go for it but i think that there is uh, you probably do need to listen to the album first just because uh there's a lot of story <laughs> and it can be i certainly know a lot of people who watched the performance over the last couple of days you know the disney plus version who were like i am just completely lost <laughs> i yeah. just don't have any idea what's happening and i think i mean i think that's true for a lot of uh musicals a lot of song through musicals where having you know being able to listen to the, the 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 recordings beforehand you know really kind of helps you just enjoy the performances as opposed to be kind of like okay so this guy's the secretary of state now okay he's coming back from france right okay good yeah especially if you know like a lot of english people who maybe don't have much of a prior knowledge of u.s history and who alexander hamilton was and all that sort of thing yeah it probably probably helps to listen to it beforehand uh next piece of news uh and this kind of like carries on from something we were talking about our episode last week it was the announcement that Amazon are producing, or in the early stages of producing, a TV series based on the Fallout series of video games. Uh, Fallout, of course, an RPG series that started in the 90s with a couple of games from uh, Interplay, uh, and then more recently achieved tremendous success through the 3D kind of like revitalization of it through Fallout 3, New Vegas, and Fallout for these kind of like post-apocalyptic retro futurist games where you know a character sets out from this vault where they've been living to escape from you know the after effects of a nuclear war and ventures out into the wasteland for some you know quest that changes from game to game and i found this quite interesting one because it's obviously a big property and it's always interesting when people kind of like take on something like this that has such a big cultural weight to it uh also because it's being produced by uh jonathan nolan uh christopher nolan's brother and the creator or one of the creators of hbo's westworld and also because you know we were talking last week about the relationship between video sh- uh, video games and movies and I-, I thought it was interesting seeing how we do seem to be entering a cycle of these like big budget adaptations of video games. Obviously the Witcher was a big hit uh, for Netflix last year. You know, that's adaptation of a book series that became a series of video games, but you know, it uses the iconography of the games a fair bit. And the last of us is being adapted for HBO by Craig Mazin of Chernobyl and hating Ted Cruz with a really fiery passion fame. And now we're getting an adaptation of, of Fallout. And, and what I find interesting about that is, whereas with movies, the approach to adapting video games tended to be like, we're going to do these like fairly exploitative versions of these titles. We're not really going to pay a huge amount of attention to the lore or whatever. We're just going to be like, okay, we're just going to bang this out because there's an audience for it. They have Television largely seems to have avoided that and they've gone more for the we want to create our new game of thrones so Mm. we're gonna grab something like fallout which is really just a setting in which you can kind of do more or less anything you want story-wise and we're going to put a lot of money and we're going to put a lot of time into it and i do find it interesting that that television seems to have gone for like okay we're going to try and take this seriously approach to it so i've not seen westworld but I'm aware of the kind of vibe that they're going for. And I guess Westworld is sort of the kind of property that is amazing. It's never actually been turned into a game as far as I'm aware. I don't think so. If, if it was, um, it's probably like a text adventure in the 80s or something. Sure. Like... It, it could fall into like a sort of the Witcher style kind of game quite neatly. Mm. So yeah, so I can't really attest for... Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy's work. I've heard, you know, the first series was great and then it's kind of wandered off a bit. Mm. I don't know whether, is it wrong to have fallout fatigue? I mean, I just have fatigue in general and then I just (laughs) feel like a heavier stack of fatigue when I hear certain things. I don't know. I I mean, it's kind of like if someone said to me, oh, there's going to be a Grand Theft Auto series. Mm, I'm like, hasn't yeah. the game sort of done everything 
even the kind of like slither of satire about America in different ways that both of them, both Fallout and Grand Theft Auto, and obviously from kind of like different different angles and different sides of the pond. But you know what, Ed? If it's the final Pam, I take everything back. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's the adaptation we all really want to see. The face of pure terror <laughs> roaming the wasteland and visiting death and horrible destruction around on everyone. And the finest hairdo I, I ever did see. Uh, and our final news story for this week was the news that Carl Reiner passed away at the age of, of 98. Carl Reiner, of course, legendary writer, actor, producer, director, you know, pre- did pretty much everything, um, stand-up, uh, two-man shows, obviously, with with Mel Brooks, who is his kind of, like, lifelong friend. And, yeah, just, like, from all accounts, an incredibly funny, decent man. Obviously, his career spans pretty much the entirety of the second half of the 20th century in terms of, you know, creating the Dick Van Dyke show, writing for your show of shows, um, working with Steve Martin in the 70s and 80s on things like The Jerk and All of Me, uh, you know, as an actor, kind of doing a little more recently, you know, him being like a delight in the the three Steven Soderbergh Ocean's Eleven movies. He was just one of those guys who had such a huge impact on impact on American comedy and American culture and who just always seemed incredibly engaged with whatever he was doing even down to you know the, the most recent years of his life when he would you know like obviously he did that wonderful episode of WTF where he talks to Mark Marin and they kind of like share stories of his life and his work and things like that and he comes across he came across there as just someone who was so engaged with the world and things that were going on he what he didn't feel like someone who was happy to just kind of like you know enjoy his retirement and and kind of like sit on his laws and you i think you really saw that as well with his twitter presence where over the last eight years he was someone who was very funny on on twitter had lots of lovely stories that he told but also was just really fucking angry about donald trump all the time and it was really yeah he just seemed like a, a thoroughly wonderful guy pouring one out for a real one ed like what a mensch Mm. yeah he even before like he's one of those people where you know there's always the generational argument that goes around about racism Mm -hmm. it's like i'm sorry uh not sorry a 95 96 as he was then your old man took a knee before Mm. anyone else did because he fought fascism and he knows what it looks like (laughs) yeah um yeah oh and just the way that anyone who knew him spoke about him how he I think the way that he talked about his family and you knew that when he said they they were the things that meant the most to him that his those people were what made his life great you like absolutely believe him Mm, and let's not forget he went into comedy and tv because he took acting classes as part of the new deal so mm, yeah. it's almost like socialist policies are a good thing. Mm. I think it speaks to a lot of people's just kind of like love for him and love for Mel Brooks that everyone's responding to be like, oh, poor Mel. Yeah. <laughs> just the knowledge of these two old men with nearly 200 years <laughs> between them meeting up every day to watch movies and joke about it. So we'll go on to our main topic this week, which uh, is... Olivia de Havilland. Now, this was uh, your suggestion, Emily, and I was so excited when you uh, suggested this because, you know, like we just talked about Carl Reiner. One of the things we talk about on the show is often we'll pay tribute to someone who passes away. And I think there is a, a, you know, everyone always says this when someone kind of like really kind of great and important passes away, like, oh man, we should have really appreciated them in real life. So it's Mm. nice that in a small way we get to do that now by talking about Olivia de Havilland, but also because. I think she is such a fascinating figure in terms of Hollywood history as, you know, one of the last connections to write the real golden age of of Hollywood. But also because I think in recent years, certainly since she turned 100, which was this like huge milestone, she really seems to have become an icon for a younger generation of 
of of women who write about film and who um you know are part of the broader film culture and i think she is someone who not merely just through her work but you know some of the, the some of the things she has done outside of acting is really impactful and important uh, but for people who who don't know who Olivia de Havilland is, I'll just do a quick kind of like biographical details. Uh, Olivia de Havilland is a is an actress. She just recently turned 104. She was born in Japan on July 1st, 1916, to uh, Walter de Havilland, uh, who was a patent lawyer who worked in Japan at the time, and Lillian Fontaine, who was an actress. She rose to prominence in the 1930s. Mainly, mainly her big breakthrough year was 1935, where she was in an adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream as Hermia and also starred in Captain Blood, which was kind of big swashbuckler, one of the first times she worked with Errol Flynn, who was one of her kind of most frequent uh, on-screen uh, collaborators, most famously in The Adventures of Robin Hood. And throughout the, the 30s, 40s, and into the 50s, when she, she more or less, she left America and moved to Paris and... Uh, worked a lot less frequently she was one of the biggest stars in hollywood during the particular golden age of of hollywood and you know this particularly exemplified by the fact that she had a major supporting role in uh gone with the wind obviously in the news again um where she played the character of, of melanie hamilton for which she was nominated for an oscar and like, like i said she is very much a connection to a era of Hollywood filmmaking and a style of Hollywood filmmaking that you know doesn't really uh, exist anymore and one of the very few remaining people who was alive to see that that era one thing that is amazing about Olivia de Havilland um, one thing that is amazing about Olivia de Havilland now is that she's four years into the rare Wikipedia job title of centenarian mm-hmm <laughs> a kind of yeah. There's a mix of Ed of, of of trying to expand my own lifespan as much as possible, partly out of Maria Bamford's "Will Stay Alive" just out of spite, if nothing else, and mm-hmm. and to just clip that because that's a fun <laughs> thing to have. Like it's, what you are is what you do now. Okay, um, interesting. Yeah, fascinating figure. Um, played by Catherine Zeta Jones, that plays her in Feud, isn't it? That's right, yes. Yeah, yeah, which is an interesting choice as well. Her birthday, uh, her 104th birthday just passed on July 1st, and the thing that made me think about her is that I wasn't really aware of de Havilland Law mm-hmm. until sort of this, this round of, of her birthday. And for anyone who isn't massively so familiar with it it's it's a really tasty piece of contract law mm, thrilling mm. but it is because it it sort of it's very rare to be able to point to an event and say this is the kind of cleaving point between one way of doing business and another and it's kind of stunning that she did that <laughs> obviously it took like longer for it's not like oh yes no the golden age of hollywood is done you know the studio system has has closed its shutters but it was the first time that an individual stood up to the system and won because there may have been you know other attempts but i didn't realize how recently it's still been used like Mm. jared leto in 30 seconds to mars and uh rita aura another singer used it to get out of sort of contracts and it's quite an amazing bit of legislation because it basically says you you can't have anyone in a contract longer for seven calendar years and try and get around basically business days Mm. (laughs) like it basically says holidays and weekends are included in that and it's just that I find that kind of almost like I'm not one who likes to appeal to common sense Ed because I think common sense is an incredibly well, frankly, racist and classist. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And anyone who appeals to common sense is basically saying, why doesn't the world think like me? And we're seeing yeah. this to horrible effect in uh, in the UK just now because of the pandemic. Anyway, that's, um, again, smattering of Ted, not a full-blown one. But it's just incredible that that was the way that the studio system operated, was that they were going to be like, no, 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 you still have like 50 days worth of your contract with us because you didn't work every like every day consecutively 
and that that was up until that point enshrined in law. It's interesting, but then again, in terms of Olivia de Havilland becoming kind of a that that figure of admiration, like you were saying, for sort of younger generations, within which I think I'm included, even though I don't feel particularly young, especially at the moment. <laughs> you, I think it's fair to say we're definitely all a little young compared to Olivia de Havilland. <laughs> Centenarian, coming after your job, Olivia. <laughs> I'm clinging on with my fingernails. Is that that is essentially like that's proto girl boss, right? Mm. Like, as much as I want to lord kind of doing things that enables creative freedom because because fundamentally she was tired of consistently being cast in this one like ingenue role yeah and and being more interested in well a wider range of roles which i guess is is fair and particularly if you're like an aging actress and at that time what they were just going to see her as is the ingenue and then drop her when it suited them and of course now you can argue well that still happens but it's unofficial and it's not to do with law and contracts are based more on are still are still sort of lean towards studios well well now I guess it's more the agencies and we've seen this in kind of the last mm. couple of kind of like rounds like particularly with the writers guild and, and their strikes in, yeah. t- in terms of like well it's not you know it used to be streaming was kind of the main sort of thrust of the writers guild strikes in 2008 and most recently, it's more about like, oh, wait a second, why aren't we, you know, why is the cut mainly going to you? And I think, as it's no surprise to anyone, Ed, how on the left I am, more more rights for workers mm. versus their employers is important. Mm. And to be able to kind of say, no, this is what a contract means in plain language that everyone can understand and you can't wriggle around a loophole it's just kind of saying no this is what time means <laughs> this is what we agreed yeah. upon but is it also just a little bit i mean i wonder i guess at that time the radical thing was to be an individual yeah whereas now i'm like as we sort of go forward in in this time of like rampant individualism i'm not saying that like you know therefore actors should have like endless um contracts with studios that's not it but i'm just questioning how much we can lift from de Havilland and and the very specific circumstance she was in and what we can take from that now. I mean, I guess it is very inspiring, but again, it's not as if she was kind of like fantastically hard up. (laughs) I I wonder if it's a little bit like, I still think uh, Taylor Swift isn't appreciated enough for taking her, uh, the guy who groped her to court, Mm. you know, for a dollar. Like yeah. it wasn't about being compensated for damages. I think her case was incredible because it was like, look, here is someone who is ostensibly privileged and one of the most famous women in the world. And she is still not immune to all of the myths around assault in a, mm. in a court of law. So yeah, it, is, is it just sort of girl boss white liberalism? Or is it, I mean, co- comrade Olivia? <laughs> I I definitely wouldn't say uh, comrade, considering that she gave gave evidence to Huac at one point. I don't think she named names, <laughs> but it was like she she was someone who was involved in something called the Independent Citizens Committee or something like that, which was like a a, a group of kind of like broadly left leaning kind of actors and artists, which at one point kind of became very pro-soviet and uh she she gave evidence against that after after leaving it because she wasn't comfortable with the fact that you know that the organization was being uh taken over by stalinists so comrades probably a step too far but i i i I personally do find it fairly inspiring for the reason that that you laid out that essentially she had the she was with a seven-year contract with warner brothers which was fairly that was standard at the time you you would sign for a studio and then you would make movies for that studio you could get loaned out as she was to work yeah. with david O'Sells nick on gone with the wind um but essentially you signed with that studio they determined what movies you were in they determined who you could work with and as an artist you were fairly restricted you know that the trade-off was be that you know 
you you'll have work for those seven years assuming you don't piss off the studio head or whatever um <laughs> but you know like things run smoothly you've got a decent chance of getting work and you'll kind of be cast in a bunch of things what happened with her specifically was that her star kind of went on the rise over the course of her contract with with warner brothers which started in um, 1936 obviously uh, with the success of the adventures of robin hood and with gone with the wind she was a much more high profile person but she was not given for the most part she was not given roles that were commensurate with her new standing and her new status. You know, as you say, she was given a lot of ingenue roles, but she was also often cast in, or she was often offered roles in movies where she would be like a supporting player or where they were fairly minor roles. And after the success of, of Gone with the Wind, she started refusing those roles um, because she said, I, I don't want to do this. I want to do something that's a little more challenging you know something that's they're kind of like bigger you know I've, I've been in one of the most yeah at the time the most successful movie ever made i think i deserve to be put in movies where i have more than just a few lines and that led to warner brothers uh suspending her uh, on occasion and then at the end of the seven years those suspensions were what were added onto her contract and said hey you have another six months time because there were six months where you weren't working because we suspended you and for me, it's it's not just about, you know, individualism. I think it's about the freedom for an artist to be able to determine what they want to do with their talents and not being funneled into something because someone else says, no, we don't want you to push yourself. We don't want you to try something new. We want you to keep doing the thing that you do which you know still happens now in terms of you know like actors have success with one role and then like okay you're gonna just do that seven more times because that's what the agents want you to do but you know they still they still have to agree to do it and they still have like they have agency over it and i think it was the the importance of her suing over the addition of the contract and the way that it genuinely did strike a blow against this exploitative contract system which was incredibly damaging to lots of actors you know mm. betty davis previously sued uh, before she did sued over the same sort of thing but you know with a different uh, legal argument and lost and she you know lost out on tons of work and roles because of that sort of stuff and it was very damaging to a lot of people's careers i i think that it is it's it's, it's obviously a net good that it was allowed allowed people to have that sort of freedom to basically say you're not going to force me to stay working for you on this contract if if once it ends because of your arbitrary decisions to keep extending it and your kind of finagling of the legal language of the definition of what a day is basically yeah i mean it's really sinister isn't it like Mm. and you know in terms of net good for de havilland after that, she went on to be able to win her first Best Actress Oscar, <laughs> which is yeah. quite a quite a stunning fuck you. But also, even though like there was huge studio power in terms of trying to like blacklist her, essentially, the fact that the Academy voted for her again, I think, is quite mm. a, a move. And it's not to say you know it's not just because of her performance, but what about her performance like on in in the kind of stage of work as well, not just like on screen in her roles. And yeah, like, I think that's partly why Judy affected me so much watching it Mm. last year. And I know that's sort of around the same-ish sort of time. But like, I I don't think we've really fully reckoned with the fact that Hollywood could sort of rear child stars and, Mm. and keep children in these kinds of, you know, thinking of Elizabeth Taylor as well and just that level of control is horrific. Mm. <laughs> Not just from like a kind of, oh, you know, being able to choose your creative projects rather than just being this kind of like bit of equipment to be loaned out, but also just the level of control they could enact on like growing bodies. I think that was part of what was so horrific and what Judy really brought home for me. Mm. Um you know, the diet that she was kept on as a child, like that's abuse, that's child abuse. And now I wonder, I mean, it's all a bit more cultural in terms of 
control of the body and that there yeah. is still a very fat phobic racist ideal of beauty put forward in Hollywood but again at this time of as people sort of euphemistically call it social unrest <laughs> who knows maybe maybe that's going to start to be overturned that much more it's kind of amazing just what a contract can mean in so many different ways being able to yeah have that that much more leverage and that it is something between two equal parties rather than a well kind of signing away your life Mm, yeah and and not having ultimately control over what the terms of that life entails yeah because or or how long that period lasts for because you know the the studio has all the power they can and this is this does definitely true i think of of betty davis was like that her contract being extended was pretty much just down to decisions that the studio made of like deciding not to cast her in things so she wasn't working so her contract could keep getting extended as long as you know they didn't cast her in things uh which was just like an an unconscionable (laughs) i think situation to put anyone in really where you just felt like Seven years doesn't actually mean seven years. So yeah. What? yeah. Um, I, I think what's really interesting as well about the um, about Olivia de Havilland is she. I think and the de Havilland law really kind of like plays into this. Is there is such a tension to her as someone who is representative of a certain era of Hollywood glamour, of a romanticism, which I think any classic film fan will be familiar with when you watch, you know, a movie from a, something something like Gone with the Wind, which you don't need to relitigate it, you know, like I don't think it's a good movie, but I think it's beautifully presented. But like the 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 scale of something like that, the the gorgeousness with which everything is um depicted, how lovely all the clothes are and all this sort of stuff, like stuff that is really just kind of like uh it's it's so kind of like capital r romantic and at the same time her like experience with it was with uh, hollywood's golden area at that time was so it was so bad for her in terms of you know like the, the, the talking about taking on roles that she just thought were totally uninspiring and being forced to do it because of the contract and you know this getting to the point where she has to sue over it she really does embody like that the both halves of it the tension that exists in the classic hollywood era where you got all of these kind of like gorgeously shot movies these movies that had such a classicism to it where underneath the surface you know the machinations of studio politics that went into making those movies were for the most part like brutal in terms of the toll that they had on people's lives in terms of, you know, even if you were someone who benefited from it, you know, immensely as a lot of the actors did, you know, people who became tremendously wealthy and become famous and, and all this sort of stuff, you know, even if you were at the top of the heap because of the ways in which power had, had so coalesced into the studio heads through their control of people's contracts, through their monopoly over distribution as well as production that, you know, even if you were someone who was tremendously successful, you were still at the whim of all these other people and you didn't really control much of your own life uh, unless, I don't know, unless you were able to work independently and very few people were able to do that. And of course, we, we can't uh, we can't finish the discussion of, of, of Olivia de Havilland without also mentioning her relationship with her sister, Joan, Joan Fontaine, who was also a actress during the classical Hollywood period who also lived a very long time. She, she passed away in uh, 2013. And, you know, you always feel bad about, like, women being pitted against each other, you know, often by the media. But I think with her, their their animosity to each towards each other was so well-established in terms of, like, it grew from initial sibling rivalry, like Olivia being the older sibling and just being annoyed at having a younger child, a younger child in the house, to just them snubbing each other when each won their respective Oscars and then basically not talking to each other for the last 40 years of their life. It's hard for that stuff not to be compelling as, like, really good copy, because... You know, you have these two women who are at the very top of their profession. They both won Oscars. They are both, you know, pretty big, sizable movie stars. They're both kind of competing for 
uh, you know, attention and roles and things like that. And at one point they were nominated against each other and Joan won. And it's it's hard not to find that sort of rivalry really, really compelling because mm. there is something Shakespearean about a rivalry going basically lasting almost the entire century because it's literally there from oh as soon as Joan was born there a rivalry existed between the two of them yeah and I mean it there's something just quite like epic in terms of sibling rivalry like Mm. and and two sisters and I think I've seen more of what Joan Fontaine has been in than Olivia de Havilland like Letter from an Unknown Woman is like devastating melodrama Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and I think actually, in terms of like parasocial relationships and the internet, probably quite a foreboding <laughs> tale and well worth a watch if anyone's not seen it. Olivia will probably be very salty that we feel we have to mention Joan Fontaine, but there you go. <laughs> Kept it very, very brief, at least. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we end this episode with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? I have a New York Times magazine profile of Charlie Kaufman. Mm. It is written by John Mualam. I think I'm saying your name right, John. I'm sorry. And it's really beautiful. I've not read something that's managed to kind of honour its subject by testing out its worldview. Mm. And John Mualam sort of tries to be Kaufman-esque in in how he describes him and trying to get across what he's saying because it's it's clearly like affected him and it's also a little snapshot of lockdown and, and quarantine and the time that we're living in that I found quite soothing if only to be like oh of course Charlie Kaufman the kind of one of the um, paradigms of cinematic anxiety has got something to say about this but it's really touching and that is my my recommendation I think it's called it's got a great title it's like this profile of Charlie Kaufman has changed <laughs> cool I'm gonna recommend a movie that just debuted on Mubi the other day it's the new uh, Werner Herzog documentary uh, Family Romance LLC which is a kind of mix of documentary and fiction um, basically Werner Herzog had a a student from his rogue film school who came and spoke to him and said hey I've discovered this guy in Japan who rents out actors to pretend to be people's family members for events such as, you know, if you're at a wedding and the father is estranged, you hire an actor to play the father and things like that. And and Herzog said, oh, you should make a movie about this. But his student said, I don't think I'm ready. And so Herzog basically was like, OK, I'll do it then. And he flew to uh, Japan and he filmed a movie starring the guy who runs the service, but, you know, in a fictionalised scenario where he's going through and playing all of these uh, different roles, including, you know, a father at a wedding or um, pretending to be the long-lost father of a young girl so that he can kind of relay information about her to the girl's mother. It's I, it's, it's a minor Herzog, but it's really fascinating in terms of what it um, explores about the, the notion of family and the notion of performance. I think it is... There are some moments for it that are in it that are, you know, kind of like real... Um, textbook Werner Herzog stuff like there's one bit where the main character and the young girl who he's pretending to be the father of are kind of like ask a guy to take their photo and when he tries to give them back the phone he does this whole elaborate mime routine where he's pretending the phone is stuck in the air and he's kind of trying to grab it and it's it doesn't have much impact on the story at all but it's just really funny and it's just this wonderfully weird little detail they put in there's another bit where the guy goes to a funeral parlor and uh, they say they offer people the chance to lie in a coffin for a bit to experience what it is to be dead which is really strange but really really interesting and i think there is 
yeah, there's there's lots to like in it. I'm not sure it coheres into anything. And I, I kind of walked away thinking, I wish this had just been a documentary about this guy because this whole thing seems really fascinating. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's really I think it's really interesting. It's it's one of the more interesting movies he's made in, in recent years. So check out Family Romance LLC. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Please rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>